Thanks, Luke, and the praise team. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. There are, usually for, for most people, several moments in their life that I like to refer to as earth-shattering moments. There are times in your life where everything seems to be turned upside down. Where no matter what you do, no matter which way you look, there seems to be chaos all around you. And it ends up shaping the way that you see the world. A lot of times it ends up shaping your very walk with Christ. The way you trust and depend on God. These kinds of earth-shattering moments change everything about the way you live and about the way you move and about the way you perceive the world around you. There have been many across my life, and I know there will be many more to come, but one that comes to mind uh, was my parents' divorce. I got my parents' divorce late, later on in my life when I was in my 20s. I was already married and when they split up. And the logic typically goes, when that happens, well, when the kids are older and out of the house, it won't be as damaging. Let's dispel that notion right away. Okay, <laughs> that is not true. It's a lie from Satan himself. But it was an earth-shattering moment for me when the two people that I trusted the most and relied on the most for all of my life had divorced it led to many things, many complications in my own life, even in my relationship with my own wife, not being able to feel like I can trust her. Well, the two people that I trusted all of my life have done this. What will you do? Led to complications that we had to sort out. The point is that there are these moments in all of our lives, and there are, there are many. If you live long enough, you'll experience a plethora of them. These earth-shattering moments that cause you to look at the world differently. The reason I bring this up is because in our text this morning, the disciples are going to experience a storm of epic proportions. They're going to experience an earth-shattering moment as well. But the earth-shattering moment for them comes not in the midst of the storm, but when they begin to realize who is with them in the boat. So let's read our passage this morning in Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? For those that are relatively new to our congregation, um, the regular pattern Sunday by Sunday for us is to slowly and methodically work our way through a book of the Bible. So for the last 15 months, 
We've been working through the book of Matthew, and we've only made it this far, yes. So I said slowly and methodically we work our way through the book. But we've, we've for the last 15 months, been working our way through the book of Matthew in hopes of seeing um, explicitly what Matthew is telling us about this person that is the central character in the story, this person, Jesus Christ. And what we're seeing in, is that in the book of, of Matthew, it's filled with dramatic irony. Now, dramatic irony is a kind of irony that is understood by the readers. You, the reader, are privy to some information that the characters in the story don't yet know. So what you understand about what's going on is, is more involved than what the characters in the story know at the time. So you might think of something like a, 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 a murder movie where the person is walking into the room and you happen to know that the killer is on the inside and they're walking in and you're saying, no, don't go in there, right? Or you might think of something like a, a Superman movie where you happen to know who this mild-mannered reporter really is, but everybody else thinks the geeky Clark Kent is just a nerdy uh, news reporter. But you know the reality. So we're told at the beginning of Matthew, all the way back in chapter 1, Matthew lays his cards on the table. He's not trying to hide anything. He's telling you, the reader, up front who this person, this Jesus, really is. He's of the line of David. He's the rightful heir to David's throne. But he's also, we learn also in chapter 1, he is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel. He has come to dwell with us. He is born of the Virgin Mary. But you see, the characters in the story don't yet know that. They're growing in their understanding of who this Jesus really is. So you'll remember, as an example, what Herod does when he finds out a little bit, even just a little bit, as to who this, this Jesus is. Remember, the Magi come to him and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They come to the capital city. They come to the, 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 the palace and they ask, where is this one who's been born king of the Jews? This is news to Herod. Well, he, has, he doesn't know of anybody that's been born king of the Jews. And so what does Herod do at the sound of this competition that's rising up? He tries to eliminate it. And so he sends out his goons to go kill babies because he's learning as to who this Jesus is. So in the first few chapters of Matthew, he clues us in, he clues all the readers in on who this guy really is. And we get a few glimpses of people as they react to him, John the Baptist and some others. But then from chapters 4 to 7, this Jesus is all grown up. He begins to introduce us to the kingdom of heaven. And naturally, the readers, we're left thinking, well, yeah, if anybody's going to introduce us to the kingdom of heaven, to the kingdom of God, it, it, it's this guy who is God in the flesh. And so he begins in the Sermon on the Mount by telling us what kind of character the citizens of the kingdom of heaven demonstrate. They're poor in spirit. They're mourners over their own sin. They hunger and thirst for righteousness and so on. He then tells us about the moral code under which they live. It's a, a, a righteousness that is heart level. It is all the way down to the heart, which exceeds the kind of righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And so all of these details mesh with what we already know of this person, 
Jesus, what we've already been told about him. So it should come as no shock to us that when we transition out of the introduction to the kingdom in Matthew 4-7, to when we get to chapter 8, when we see this physical demonstration of the kingdom of heaven impacting real-world lives, that Jesus is at the helm. That He is the one directing and is the point person for the kingdom of heaven as He brings it into people's lives. And we see that it has an impact on the physical world. The first, the chapter 8 opens with three straight miracles of, imp- of the kingdom's impact on the physical world. And soon we'll see it actually impacts the spiritual world as well. We saw the first three miracles that open chapter 8 where Jesus cures the leper. He heals a paralytic person from a distance. He doesn't even have to touch him. He just just says the word and he heals him. And then he raises a woman who is feverish, Peter's mother-in-law. He raises her up and she's completely healed. And then he begins to open up shop for the rest of the people in the town of Capernaum. And he just heals them all day. And then we saw last week where he actually has authority over his own disciples. Where he's able to tell them this is the mission and choose who is his disciples. So now we're heading into... Three more miracle stories. Three consecutive miracle stories. And in the story that that we're going to learn more about this person that the reader should already know, this person, Jesus. Now, we, the audience, already know who he is, but Matthew is going to back up the claims that he's already made about him in chapter 1 through 3. He's made these claims that he's God with us, and he's going to back it up by showing us what he's actually doing in these miracles. So here, as Jesus and his disciples get into the boat, they move to the other side of the sea, or are in the process of moving to the other side of the sea, the disciples are going to be in the boat, and they're going to discover who this Jesus really is. Now, in this scene on the lake, we're going to see three times where this ca- the camera shifts from one group of people to the other. Or, in one case, from the storm to this person, Jesus. So the whole story is here to prove a very simple point to the reader and to the disciples in the boat. And it's here to demonstrate to the disciples and to us what we may not quite have our minds wrapped around, that Jesus is God. It's going to prove, very simply, spoiler alert, that Jesus is God. That's where we're going to end up. That's where the story ends up. That's the point of this whole story, that Jesus is God. Now, in the process, there are three observations that I want us to make to underscore that very point. And the first observation is this. Jesus' peace comes from an assurance in the Father's plan. Jesus' peace comes from an assurance in the Father's plan. Look with me in verse 23 and 24. And when he got into the boat... His disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. All right, the first thing that we see in this passage is in verse 23, that he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Now, ordinarily, we wouldn't think anything of that statement. It's just kind of a throwaway statement to get us from one place to another. It's like a scene change. But it's not just telling us a minute detail. If you'll remember last week, the passage that we had just looked at, there were two candidates for discipleship that came up to Jesus. 
They came up to him, presenting to him their case for following him. You'll remember that the scribe comes up to him first, and he seems intent on following Jesus, but we learn he he hadn't counted the cost yet. And so Jesus really tells him, if you're going to follow me, then what that means is you need to prepare to be homeless. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, we're not told the reaction of the scribe. Maybe he followed, maybe he didn't. But then similar, there's the next disciple that comes up to him and says, look, I want to follow you, but let me take care of some business first. I need to go bury my father. Now, with neither of these are we told whether they followed or whether they didn't, but we're told in verse 23 explicitly, and I think intentionally by Matthew, all of his disciples got in the boat with him. All those that were following him understood the cost. They've counted the cost of following Jesus, and there's nothing that's more important to them than following Jesus. We're also told about this scene in Mark 4, 36. It says, And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So this is not, I don't think, one little boat packed tight with 13 men like sardines going across the lake, but more like a caravan of boats that are going into the land of the Gadarenes and are ready to do the mission that Christ has called them on, totally aware of what's happening and what commitment they're actually making. But it's, it's here that we get the first contrasting picture in this scene. The contrast is between the storm that gathers around the men in the boat and the Savior. So what is it that Matthew tells us happens here in verse 24? He says, there arose a great storm. Now the word that Matthew uses there for storm is most commonly translated an earthquake. And so here it's translated storm. It should probably bring to your mind something more like a whirlwind that's coming down on the lake and stirring up the waters. So we're not talking about rain and lightning and thunder. Chiefly, we're talking about wind that's very strong. Now, I want you to consider for a moment what kind of fear that would create in you. Okay, first, I want you to consider the fishermen and their experience. So just think about these fishermen for a moment. At least four of them are fishermen and have made their living out on the Sea of Galilee catching fish. They've seen storms before in their past. Now, we know that in the next chapter, Jesus is going to call Matthew the tax collector. So, uh, does he have all 12 disciples or not? Well, Mark tells us that before this ever happened, he called all all 12 disciples. So, it's likely that he has all 12 disciples and that Matthew doesn't care very much for chronology. Okay, so don't come up to me afterwards and say, but Matthew's not called until the next chapter. No, probably all 12 disciples are there with him. But regardless, at least four of them are professional fishermen and know what they're doing. And they're all scared. They're all out of their minds scared. This is nothing short of a tempest that's threatening to capsize this boat. Now, in addition to their experience, I want you to picture the boat for just a second. Now, we're not talking about a massive ship. That may be what's in your mind, but that's not what we're talking about. In the 1980s, we actually discovered a first century fishing boat. I, I got a video of it. You can see it up here. It should play on the screen behind me. 
This is a first century fishing boat that was discovered by the Sea of Galilee. So when you, you might have in your mind something of a large, massive ship, but not really. You should probably have more something like a big canoe, okay? A, a, a sizable canoe. Now, it would fit probably five to six men comfortably. Thirteen men would be a squeeze, all right? It, they would be familiar with one another, all right, <laughs> if there were 13 of them. But this is the point. The boat is probably something pretty small in size, and these people are professionals. Now, on top of the experience of the crew and the small size of the boat, you probably also need to picture the storm as it happened on the Sea of Galilee. Um, a few months ago, I happened to be in Israel where I took that video with a group of pastors. And we got on the, a boat, you go out into the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and it was a bright and beautiful day. And we were, we were happy to be out there. This is, you're on the Sea of Galilee, and this is like the first, so much of the Bible happens on this sea. And we're a bunch of pastors just out there on a boat in the middle of the sea, a bigger boat than that one, but we're on a boat, right, in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. You can't help feel like you're living in the New Testament, all right? So we're out there, and slowly, well, quickly, as far as storms go, we start to see the blue clouds gather on the horizon, and the clouds start to move in rather at a pretty brisk pace, and we're all going, uh-oh, I've read the New Testament. <laughs> I think we should turn this thing around and head back to the shore. <laughs> but the storm starts rolling in, and then all of a sudden, we feel the whooshing of the wind come right past us. And then the Sea of Galilee all around us starts turning and starts rocking a little bit. And the boat that we're on starts rocking back and forth. Now the Sea of Galilee is surrounded by cliffs and probably looks very similar to something like it would look in the first century. It hasn't changed a ton. It doesn't appear. There's, there's some new buildings, but not a whole lot. But it sits in this little bowl. And there's really one main valley rift that comes in from the north and exits out the south. So when the wind comes in and the storms hit this lake, they sort of whirl around in this, in this bowl and you can feel it. And so we're rocking back and forth in this boat as the flecks of rain start to hit the boat, and it's like that long before we're a little bit, just a little bit unnerved. Like, we don't have Jesus in this boat, okay? So we need to figure something out. And so we're standing there, but it's, it's kind of like the Lord just saw a boat full of pastors and was like, here's a sermon illustration for you. Just, you know, just send this storm on in there. But the boat is rocking, and so these fishermen are experienced. They're on a small boat. What I experience on the Sea of Galilee, they see all the time. This is not that kind of thing. This is much greater than that. But these storms hit within minutes. I mean, they're there fast, and they leave really fast, and they leave a wake behind them. And so if you're watching this movie, you're picturing the, the, the scene where the waves are growing. They're crashing into the side of the boat. The fishermen are scared. The music in the background is growing more and more ominous, and then all all of the sudden, the music stops, and the camera turns to one man in the boat, sound asleep. You see the juxtaposition? You see the difference here? Why is Jesus asleep? 
Has Matthew oversold the story? Maybe it wasn't, I mean, the, the storm, was it, really, was it really that bad? No, I think he did not oversell it, that it really is that bad of a storm. How can Jesus sleep at a time like this? Well, it's not difficult to figure out how Jesus can be asleep at this moment. He's able to sleep for the same reason that you or I are able to sleep. His mind is at ease. His mind's at peace. Because he knows and he understands and he trusts the Father's plan. That nothing can come to these men out on the sea. There's no situation that could be presented to them that's going to unsettle Jesus' nerve or conviction. See, there's, there's nothing that's going to cause him to worry. All of it, in all of it, he is completely trusting in the fa- that, that all of this stuff that's coming to him is the Father's doing. That nothing is going to upset his plan. But see, that brings us to the next observation that we need to make. The disciples' fear comes from a lack of faith in the Messiah. The disciples' fear comes from a lack of faith in the Messiah. Look at verse 25. And they went... And woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? So here we have our second contrast, this time between Jesus and the disciples. The camera cuts back to the disciples who are worried. And the ominous music begins to play again. We hear it. The waves are crashing into the boat. They're panic-stricken. And they run to Jesus who is asleep. And the first thing they cry out is, Save us, Lord. Surely they know at this point there's something. I don't know who can do something about this. But surely this man can. We've just got done watching him heal people. Heal a leper. Heal Peter's mother-in-law who is probably dying of, of, a, or, or dying of, a, of a fever or whatever the illness is. Uh, we've seen him cure a, a paralytic man from a distance. Surely if anybody can do something about this, even if it just means help bailing water, surely this man who is asleep can do that. But then they reveal the heart of their worry. What do they say next? We are perishing. We're going to die. They're convinced that in this moment that this is the end. The weather started getting rough. The tiny ship was tossed. If not for the fear, fear, fear of the, or the lack of courage of the fearful crew, the boat's going to be lost. All the millennials are like, why are people laughing? It doesn't make sense. What, what's, what's so funny? What, what, did, what did he just say? Uh, this was only supposed to be a three-hour tour. We're going to die right out here. Now they're really lost. Like, I have no idea. Google it. Uh, but, uh, but the camera cuts back to Jesus' response. Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Matthew's going to tell us in a minute. Jesus hadn't even stood up yet. Jesus is still probably putting on his shoes, and the waves are coming in, rubbing the crust out of his eyes as the waves are coming in. Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. He's completely calm, 
in the midst of a tumultuous boat ride with waves crashing over the boat. And you have to imagine that the problem with their appeal is not in their asking him to save them. It's in the notion that they would perish. First, imagine what this says about their confidence in Jesus as the Messiah who is sent by God, they think, to rescue the Jewish people. Now set aside for a moment what you, the reader, already know, that Jesus is going to die and rise from the dead. Just set that aside for just a moment and put yourself in the shoes of the disciple who, th- prob- who probably think that he is the Messiah. That's the reason that they're following him. But they think that he's going to be a political ruler. He's going to come in and run out the, the Romans, and he's God's man. He's the one that God has brought here. But are they trusting in this moment in Christ as the Messiah? Well, of course they're not. The boat is going to capsize. And they're going to go down with it. And they're going to drown in the lake, all of them. Jesus gets up and criticizes their fear because it demonstrates a lack of faith in the person of Jesus. In this moment, when the rubber meets the road, or maybe you might say when the ore meets the water, they lose all of their nerve. Reveals what they really believe about this person who's in the boat with them. But I want you to also consider what it says about their lack of confidence in the Father's plan. Even if they do believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's sent here by God, or maybe they believe that the Messiah is just going to be a political ruler, but he's sent here by God, are we really to believe that the Father has sent the Messiah to earth, born of a virgin, narrowly escaping Herod's evil plot to kill a bunch of babies, going down to Egypt, surviving in Egypt and being protected there, coming up out of Egypt, enduring temptation in the wilderness by Satan himself, only to be killed on a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee? Is that what we're to expect of this story? Well, there it ends. Chapter 8. End of story. And he sunk in the bottom of the ocean. The fear of the disciples demonstrates the exact opposite of the disposition of Jesus who is asleep in the boat. Why is it that Jesus is so confident? Why is it that he's so at peace that he can sleep in the midst of the storm because he trusts in the plan of the Father. The Father's plan for Jesus is good and for the disciples good and it's for the Father's glory and Jesus trusts in this. Implicitly, he trusts in this. But the disciples' lack of faith, as Jesus says, is precisely that they fail to trust in the plan of God. But listen, this story is here precisely because it forces all disciples who follow Jesus to ask the question, do you trust in God's plan? Do you trust in his plan? We have these trite little sayings that everything happens for a reason. Or another one is, God is in control. Right? Everything happens for a reason. God is in control. But then it takes one bout with the flu, and we're down on our, on our deathbed, we feel like, for us to doubt. Or worse health issues arise, 
Maybe death is on the horizon. Or perhaps it's health issues for people that you love, a spouse, a child, parent. Storms all of a sudden get very real and they leave us sane. Or the question is, do they leave us sane? I'm about to perish. Save me, Lord. I'm about to die. Or do they leave us saying with Job, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. The faith of the Christian is often demonstrated through tears. So when the plans of God result in painful circumstances, instead of shaking his fist at the sky, he expresses an unrelenting joy that although I don't know how this ends, I trust in the one that planned it. I don't know what tomorrow brings. I don't know how this ultimately ends, but I trust in the goodness of the one that planned it. Are you mad at God for the journey that you're on? For the way that your life has unfolded thus far? For the job that He gave you? For the mission that He gave you? For the spouse that He gave you? Perhaps for the spouse that He took away? For the place that He moved you from? The place that he moved you to? My suggestion is that you may be in the same boat as the disciples. And you need to repent for your lack of faith. See, can you tell God that you're angry? Can God handle the voice of your anger in prayer? He absolutely can. But you need to be prepared when you lay your anger out before the Lord that eventually you're going to be repenting for that anger. As his plan is revealed. See, if you are in Christ, his plan for your life is good. It's for your good and for his glory. And whatever God ordains is right. Which brings us to the third point. The deity of Christ is demonstrated in his sovereignty over the storm. The deity of Christ is demonstrated in his sovereignty over the storm. 26, then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? So the camera stays on the Messiah as he rises to his feet and rebukes the wind and the sea. Jesus called out the disciples' lack of faith, presumably while he was still seated. Remember, he's talking to them while he's still seated. There are urgent matters. We can deal with our faith in, the me- in a little bit. Why don't you go ahead and just do what you're going to do, right? You can see that he's in no hurry to get to his feet. Everything about the way Matthew tells this story is setting Jesus' reaction and his confidence in the Lord's plan as different than that of the disciples' fear. But he rebukes the sea, and it says there was a great calm. Before, he said there was a great whirlwind, a great earthquake, a great storm that came. But, but 
now we see that there is a great calm instilled by Jesus. So there is an equally and great calm that takes place on the sea to meet the great storm that took place at the very beginning. Now, can you imagine this sea that's tempestuous, that's creating these waves coming over the boat? And then Jesus stands up and he speaks to the wind and to the waves. And all of a sudden, the wind dies completely and the sea turns to glass. camera turns to the disciples whose jaws hit the floor. Matthew tells us the men marveled. Probably all of the boats around that are feeling this wind and waves are thinking the same thing. What have we just seen? What have we just witnessed? See, evidently they've been traveling with Jesus for a while now and they don't entirely grasp who he is. This makes what the centurion does a few passages ago stand out all the more. When he comes up to Jesus and he knows that this man is the Son of God and he carries with him the full authority of the Son of God and he can command those illnesses from a distance and they'll disappear. He doesn't need to come to my house. But here the disciples haven't fully grasped this yet. And so they're around him and it leads them to ask the question, what sort of man is this? And this is actually a running theme throughout these three miracles. This one and the following two. See the disciples here, after he calms the storm, the disciples ask, what sort of man is this? But then in the next passage, the, the two demonic possessed men or demon possessed men come up to Jesus, and they call him the Son of God by name. The demons know exactly who he is. Spoiler alert, he's the Son of God. Then in the passage that follows that, the Pharisees and the scribes will question whether he has the right and the authority to forgive sins. They're questioning whether or not he really is the Son of God. But see, you, the reader, by the time we get there, should already know the answer to that question because you've just seen it in two different parables where he's calmed the, or uh, scenes where he's calmed the storm and then where the demons have recognized him. So it's abundantly clear to us that the winds recognize him, the sea recognizes him, the demons recognize him, the disciples might be beginning to recognize him, the scribes and the Pharisees absolutely do not recognize him. So it leaves us with the question, do you, the reader, recognize him? See, the point of this story is quite simple. Jesus is God. This story really took place in a boat in the first century on the Sea of Galilee. It's historical fact it took place on the Sea of Galilee. And it demonstrated to the disciples that were there on the scene at the time and it demonstrates to us now that Jesus is God. No one can calm the wind and the waves but God alone. We see something similar to this in the book of Jonah, don't we? Where Jonah is also on a boat. He is also asleep in the midst of a storm that God brought to the boat. Jonah is also awakened by the crew. He's brought up to help. As soon as he gets thrown in, God then calms the storm. You know this is in the mind of 
the disciples as they're in the boat. It proves that as Jesus stands up and speaks to the wind and the wave and they calm down, that he has the authority over this storm. He has the authority of God himself. Now, countless sermons have been preached on this passage. And many of them end with the application, Jesus will calm the storms in your life. But that's not the promise in this text. There's no promise that God will calm every storm in your life. But there is a promise for those that are in Christ that he's sovereign over them all. That he's sovereign over them all. If the wind and the seas obey him, so does everything in your life. So does everything around you. There's nothing over which he does not have authority. The point is not whether or not Jesus will calm all the storms in your life, but do you trust that he has the authority over it? See, the earth-shattering moment for you should not be when you realize the magnitude of the trial that you're in, but when you realize who's in the boat with you. This gospel will end with a promise that Jesus makes to his disciples, and we extend this promise to every disciple that follows Jesus from then on out, where he tells the disciples, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of of the age. Is your marriage in trouble? Christ is in the boat. Is cancer running through your body? Christ is in the boat. Do you trust him or do you not? Do you trust in his sovereign plan or do you not? That is the question that we as disciples have to ask ourselves. Do you trust him or do you not? Then all of a sudden, Death comes. And we fear it and we look at it in the face and we think, I don't want to go through that. And then on the other side, we see the face of the Savior. And we touch the scars in His hand. And it all makes sense. Do you trust Him? Or do you not? William Cooper was a contemporary of John Newton. In 1774, he wrote a hymn entitled, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. And it goes like this. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. 
ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so many storms I know of in this very room right now. So many I know of crying for relief from the storm. Save us, we are perishing. So many for whom not only does the devil have a foothold, but is wreaking havoc. We pray for our faith. That we maintain confidence and trust in your plan. so hard we see the wind and the waves they hurt Lord as tempting as it is to cry for relief we first cry for help in seeing your sovereign hand at work That we can trust, in spite of the fact that it seems like all hope is gone. Lord, I pray that you would renew our hope and our confidence in you. And for every case in here of storm, things I know about and things I don't know about, bring peace. In Jesus' name, amen.